And then after two months, sent me to this town in the GDR where they sent all or nearly all of deserters from Western armies. 15 Americans, 10 Britons, about six or seven French. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we speak with Victor Grossman, a 24-year-old American serving in the U.S. Army who in 1952 swam across the Danube River in Austria to the Soviet zone. He ended up in East Germany with other Western defectors and has lived in Germany ever since. If you like what you're hearing, then from the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help us cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air. Just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. Thank you so much to our latest supporters, Stephen and Tim Brown. Whilst some of you will disagree with Victor's views, his first-hand account of his experiences is an important part of Cold War history. We start my Cold War conversation with Victor telling us about his early life in the United States. Yes, I was born in New York City in 1928, and... uh, um, in a sort of a middle-class family. My father was an art director. My mother was a, later became a librarian. And it was a, a time, in, especially in New York, in the late 30s, when a large portion of the city was very, very left-wing oriented. And so was I, right from the start. In fact, I think with six years old, I was already a, a, a red or a leftist. Uh, and somehow stayed stubborn and never got over it. In any case, I went to many different schools. We moved around a lot. And uh, uh, I went to nine different schools, seven public schools, two private schools, almost never more than a year or two in any one school. And um, uh, got involved in high school in organized political Activity, in other words, left-wing activity in high school. That was during the uh, during the Second World War. Right, and and did that activity get you into any trouble with the school, or or was it quite commonplace? Oh, that was commonplace. <laughs> it was <laughs> that was not uh, that was before the McCarthy era. Uh, still, in my in my younger years, that uh, that hit later when I was at college began to uh, hit, but up until. The end of the war, uh, except for the d- difficult period in 1939-40, but otherwise the United States and the uh, USSR were allies against the Nazis, so that there was very little uh, sort of pressure against left-wingers until 1945, and that's right. when I went to college. Right, and uh, what what did you study at college? I was uh, lucky enough, partly thanks to the school I was in, to get into Harvard College, which was, of course, a prestige college in the United States and still is. And um, I I majored in economics with a a specialty on labor history and economics. 
But uh, uh, first of all, at Harvard, you had to uh, branch out and take also some things in the arts and some things in, in natural sciences, as well as your own major field. And it was not such a specialized training. Uh, in fact, it didn't train you to be anything at all. But I became very active politically right from the very start, from the, my first semester. And that really took most of my attention, more attention than, than college studies. Although I got along at college, okay. But, um, but I was, what I really took away was more this group, small group of leftists that were communists, although uh, we didn't admit it openly, who were a very, very brilliant bunch of youngsters. I think they were the most brilliant students at Harvard at the time. And many of them became very uh, successful professors in all kinds of different fields. And I was a pretty naive kid. I was very leftist, but I didn't have much of a clue as to uh, Marxist teachings or anything. But I learned a lot from them. And we had a, actually... Uh, although the pressures grew over those four, the years I was there from 1945 to 1949, the pressures, the Cold War pressures, grew almost immediate. In fact, they started before the war ended. But um, actually, uh, it wasn't. It was a uh, interesting time. The, this group I was in was jolly. We had fun. We joked. But also, I learned a great deal, and um, uh, I learned a great deal, which perhaps more than I did it from the professors. Right. Okay. And so when th th this was up to 1949, did you say? That's right. Right. And then at the request or at the suggestion, I should say, not as it's sometimes presented the order, but the suggestion or a request almost of the uh, communist party, which I was a member of by since 45, uh, we were asked of the graduates from Harvard that year in 49, uh, we were told, of course, you have a, a good diploma and maybe a good career if nobody knows too much about your left-wing activities. But, are there, uh, but our party is supposed to be a working class party. Are any of you, but we don't have enough people in the working class right now. We lost a lot during the war years. Are any of you interested in trying out to become a worker. And although I was uh, almost la least uh, able to do that, I was always kind of a technical idiot. I, I, I couldn't even drive a car and I, I couldn't do anything really with my hands in that sense. But I was one of the three who said yes. And I therefore got one and then a second job in Buffalo working in two factories, uh, in the one, and then I got laid off, and then the other, doing very simple mechanical work in those two factories. And uh, although I didn't really have, have much of an effect upon anybody else, it had a great, great effect upon me, because I learned, as a, up till then, a middle-class intellectual kid, I learned something about the majority of working people in the United States how they felt, what their thinking was, what their problems were, uh, the fact that they were not very politically conscious, but at the same time, in the middle of a day-to-day, -day, what you have to call class conflict. It was a conflict, actually, of every penny that you could make or earn as against the company, which was trying to cut wherever they could. And seeing this in, in, in close, 
taught me an awful lot. And the second thing I got in in that city in Buffalo, uh, our little left wing uh, group there, uh, mostly young people, uh, we were very very close into the black ghetto community because they were politically very active. The the uh, some of the most important activists in Buffalo were black, and so I who uh, was living in a, in a little room by myself, but I spent most of my free time with this very very wonderful family. It was a mother and her ten kids, and of those ten kids, one was a little too old and one was too young, but all the rest of them were leftists, and their husbands or wives as well. So that uh, I learned something of the problems, the life, the culture, the difficulties of black Americans, which is something also which stayed with me till today. Then you are conscripted into the U.S. Army, I believe? Yes. When the Korean War began, that was in 1950, I too got drafted. I was in 1945. I was just a months too young to get drafted for the Second World War. I, if I'd been a half year older, I would have been drafted. But uh, but the war ended, and I was saved from that. But when the Korean War came around, I wasn't too young. I got drafted. I left Buffalo, and uh, got into uniform. Uh, the big problem was by then the McCarthy era had really. Turned very, very rough. Although McCarthy himself was just emerging, but uh, that whole anti-Russian um, uh, spirit, uh, and really an, an aggressive military sense, pervaded the whole United States uh, media and culture. And there was a law which said that any member of a leftist organization had to register as a foreign agent with the police, and whoever did not register was liable to up to $10,000 fine and five years in jail for every day that he didn't report. In other words, after a week, 35 years, after five years for each day, after two weeks, 70 years, and this has already been on for six months. And of course, I had nobody who ever registered for this damn thing. So, um, but we were, as a recruit in the army, you were presented with a, a long list of about 120 organizations, uh, which you had to sign. I am not, and I've never been a member of any of these organizations. Almost all of them were left-wing organizations. Uh, mo- many of them long since gone, but still, I was still in about a half dozen of them, and I'd been in a half dozen others. Question, should I sign this damn thing, or should I not sign it? I didn't really know what to do. And um, I was sort of, if I if I admitted that I was a leftist, then I should have registered with the police. If I didn't, I was in danger. In any case, I made a sudden decision, basically out of fear, and I signed this statement that I never had been in anything and hoped that for the two years in the Army, if I kept my mouth shut and my nose clean, maybe they wouldn't check up. Right. And, and that's it, what it, happened. And- I had training. And I was lucky enough to be sent not to Korea, but to West Germany. Right. Did, did you ever consider sort of trying to avoid the draft and trying to disappear or anything like that? Uh, no. When they first started registering for the draft, that was before the Korean War. It was just in 1948 they started. Uh, they had stopped after the war, but they started registering again. 
And I asked my, my buddies, how can I get out of this? They said, the only thing you can do, you can say, you can say that you're a bedwetter. <laughs> they wouldn't take you. Uh, but I just couldn't. I couldn't say that. I couldn't get to say writing that in and lying on that so that I did get registered. And no, I never thought there was no no possibility and no immediate need for me to disappear. I didn't consider it. Yeah. And, and what uh, sort of unit were you in in the U.S. Army? It was an infantry unit. It was an infantry unit, and um, later I got a job as an uh, in the um, uh, as a clerk, and then stupidly, probably when uh, when I got to West Germany, I was offered a chance to learn radio. It meant learning the Morse code and how to tell uh, use a radio, and it was so tempting to get away from the little town where we were stuck in a beautiful town in the mountains, but very small and very limited. I, it meant getting to the big town, city of Munich. And I said, okay, and I took this course. And that was probably a big blunder. When I, I at the end of it, I took a furlough, to, a wonderful furlough to Italy, and then later to Scandinavia. But when I got back, they were on to me and they sent me a letter from the Pentagon saying, you signed that statement, although you were in one, two, three, four, they listed six or seven, left-wing organizations I had been in, report on Monday to the military judge in Nuremberg. And this is when I panicked because I read that if if you lied about signing that statement, you are again liable to up to 10,000 and five years in prison, not five years per day, but five years was enough. And I panicked completely at the idea of going to military prison. And I had a, I had uh, six days to decide, and I decided to take off and, and, and disappear. And that's what I did. Okay. And you, you, you decided that the, the best place for you to go was into the, uh, well, crossing over to the Soviet zone in Austria, I think. That's right. It was the only thing, the only place I couldn't stay anywhere in Western Europe because they would have sent me, sent me back to the U.S. Army. I had to go east, and of course I was a leftist, so I decided to go east, and I went to the town, the city of Linz in Austria, which is on the Danube River, and the Danube River at that stretch divided the Soviet zone and the United States zone of Austria still at that time. So that by I sw- swimming across the Danube River, I got from American zone, the American zone to the Soviet zone. And uh, I didn't know where they'd send me or where they'd put me. I didn't care. I just didn't want to spend five years in military prison. That was my objective. So that it was a, a very adventurous uh, crossing, I might say, but I won't go into that now. It was very adventurous, but it worked out and I survived. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here listening to me. And I got to the Soviet side. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. 
As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Right, and I might, I might say here that I expected, since that was part of the Iron Curtain, I expected to see, if not Soviet tanks, then men with machine uniform, men with machine guns all along that border. But I didn't find I didn't find any Russians at all. It was a Sunday in August, Sunday early morning. There wasn't a soul of any kind to be seen, in or out of uniform. Almost no cars. I was looking. I was trying to find them. And I, I wandered around all day without my shoes, which I'd lost, I'd thrown away before swimming. And I never, I didn't find them, but finally I looked a mess and the, the Austrian police picked me up and I lied and said, I don't speak any German, though I did already speak fair German. I said, I want to go to the Soviets because I didn't trust the Austrian cops, which was very wise of me. And I did, and they took me to the Soviets who took me first to a, prison cell in, in, in their headquarters near Vienna for two weeks. And then they were, uh, then they, after the first day, they were very friendly and nice, but there was, I was still locked up with a guard. Then they drove me. Uh, they, I didn't know which country I would be landing in, but they decided on East Germany, the GDR, German Democratic Republic. And they drove me up there uh, and took me to a, a house in the city of Potsdam near Berlin, locked me up again for two months, but in a very, very nice room, beautiful room and a nice garden. I could walk in it for an hour every day, but still cut off from any communication. And then after two months, sent me to this town in the GDR where they sent all or nearly all of deserters from Western armies, so- uh, which meant... Yeah. Go on. Uh, that meant about 15 Americans, about 10 Britons, about six or seven French, and a, uh, about six or seven North Africans who had been drafted by the French to go to Vietnam and didn't want to fight there, and a smattering of uh, the few Dutch and other people. And we were all in this one town. Okay. And, and why had these soldiers come over for the same reason as as yours they were leftists who wanted no part in nato or no some but not too many some were leftists but the majority had simply had difficulties with the army sometimes in connected with alcohol sometimes with minor misdemeanors uh, not major misdemeanors. I think the, the the Soviets wouldn't have accepted them, but minor misdemeanors, which and uh, only a relatively small number were were political. Uh, a few of the uh, I knew one British fellow who didn't was in the army, didn't want to fight in Korea, and therefore he quit. He left. He deserted. Another one, uh, an officer, a British officer, fell in love with a. a German woman in West Germany, where he was stationed, wasn't allowed to stay with her by the rules and therefore took off with her to East Germany and landed there. And, um, and there were all kinds of, all kinds of different, some were black Americans who got into trouble because they had white girlfriends in West Germany when they were stationed and they were told to break off and didn't want to. 
and were threatened to be sent to Korea then, and instead they came to East Germany. So there was a whole variety of reasons, and it was a, not an easy bunch to get along with. And I was there two years, as a matter of fact. In the, uh, uh, It was difficult also because a lot of them didn't speak German. There was no electronic music or uh, community. In fact, we didn't, there was no television at that time yet. And and radio, although we could hear the American station, the army station, but otherwise very little, especially if you didn't know German, so that they, there were lots of people got into trouble getting, uh, staying out late, getting drunk, getting into trouble. So the Soviets who were in charge until the, about 53, they set up a special school to learn a trade for all of us, all the foreigners there, well, there were about 35, 40 of us, uh, all went to this trade school for one year to learn a trade. Some learned mechanics, some learned, I think, painter. I learned to work, work a lathe machine in that one year. I'm still very proud that I managed to learn a lathe machine, to work a lathe machine. For me, a real technical idiot, but luckily for me, and luckily perhaps for the economy, I didn't work as a lathe operator because I got the chance, I was in 1954, to go to university in Leipzig and to start four more years of university there at the School of Journalism in Leipzig, of the Karl Marx University. Right, right. And and journalism was, I mean, what, what was the training like in, in, in journalism in, in East Germany? Well, it was um, just starting. I, uh, our, the Department of Journalism was just beginning. I think it was only one year old when I got there. In fact, it had uh, been for three years. That's one reason I chose it, because I was already 26 by that time. But when I, got, when I arrived, it turned out it was four, 20, four years again. In the meantime, however, I should mention that in, in this town where I had been living, called Maltzen, uh I had had the great, great, great luck of meeting my future wife. And this is what really saved me from homesickness and from melancholy. And she uh, uh, she decided to go to Leipzig also to stay with me. And, that, and after a year, we got married. And after another year, we got a, our first of two sons. So this really was a saving grace for me. As for the college, it was a mix. There were there were good and there were bad elements about it. We had some very bad dogmatic professors, and we had some wonderful, wonderful professors. Uh, we, we had both. The, the first two years, everybody took the same courses. The last two years, you had much choice, and I had more some more in, uh, very interesting professors there. Uh, that actually, I didn't learn so much journalism there. Uh, I think that was only gradually organizing, really training in journalism. Not only that, a different kind of journalism that's known in the West anyway. But what I did learn, for me, it was important uh, because I didn't have a clue. I learned about German history and I learned about German literature. And of course, I learned about life in the GDR. So that these are the things that I really got away from, got from those four years in this very interesting city of Leipzig. And so after university, what, what role did you, did you go into? Presumably, you, were, were you a, a, G, a GDR citizen at that point, or had you not 
taken nationality? No, I never applied to become a Judeo citizen. I said I was born an American. I'm still American. I speak fluent German but with a heavy American accent. And I do really hope at some time, perhaps, to be able to return to my home. In fact, I always hope to be able to return. So I never applied to be a GGS citizen. I was always, I had a, uh, they had a, 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 a everybody in Germany had a, a, some kind of uh, identification ID document. Mine was for foreigners uh, saying I was a citizen of the United States, but resident in the GDR. So uh, what I did was I had four jobs. The first one was a publisher of English language books. Um, it was a venture of an American who lived in the GDR then, and she organized the publishing of, uh, especially at the beginning of English language authors who were leftists and therefore had trouble selling or publishing their books in the United States, in England, in South Africa, and uh, Australia. I worked there only a short time, though, because I got a job with a, an English journalist who had come over to the East. Uh, uh, he was a, an important journalist for Reuters, but he was angry at the distortions of, of what was going on in the East and moved to the East and set up a bulletin telling the story, uh, telling about, uh, it, was a, it was a bi-weekly fortnightly uh, bulletin of eight pages telling about life in the GDR from a, a fair standpoint with a bit of self-irony. It wasn't this hurrah kind of stuff that you often find in such publications, but also exposing the amazingly large number of important Nazis who basically ruled the roost in West Germany. And these exposures, exposés of the entire military command of almost all the judges and prosecutors, of all the diplomats, of academics, of, of uh, police, of uh, professors. This was in our bulletin, which he sent to all labor MPs in London, and which meant there was constant pressure on the West German government because they were exposed to how many often very, very nasty and brutal Nazis, judges who had, who had been, uh, you know, called for execution for people for nothing, and war criminals of the worst kind running the army, uh, that they had to get rid of some of them, uh, some uh, uh, diplomats too. In any case, I worked there for five very interesting years. Right. Then I moved to and this radio, was which was setting up a... Uh, a service for ham listeners in the, in North America about the GDR. And after that, I worked for <clears throat> three years for an archive, a new archive, which I helped set up about the great black American singer and actor, Paul Robeson, who was especially, especially uh, uh, favored in Britain because he lived there for many years in the 1930s. He was loved by millions of, of, of British people, Scott, Welsh, and uh, English people. And I helped set up this archive about his life until 1968, when I quit that and became a freelance journalist, translator, teacher, 
and then slowly uh, author of books. Right. Okay. Can I, I just wanted to ask you a few questions about that. I think the Englishman you're referring to is John Peets, the Reuters. That's the right. Reuters exactly. John Peets, a, a wonderful, wonderful journalist. And it's. I learned, really, I learned good journalism, I think, as good as I could from him. He was a remarkable journalist. And I think you, you were in a, f- a feature film with him, weren't you? Oh, well, yes. There were several films which involved somehow Britain um, and in in these films, the directors got everybody they possibly could in East Germany who was a native speaker of of uh, of English, the English language, and we got what were really bit bit parts, bit roles. It was just my role was I think of uh, about two sentences or three sentences. He had a little more, I think. He he looked so very English. He was he somehow was a typical, uh, well, to us Americans, we would say a typical typical Englishman. Um, um, but anybody who could speak mother tongue English was recruited. But that was not so important. It was it was some, a nice little side uh, side engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Were, were there any other British people that you worked with or met when you were in the GDR? Well, of course, I've mentioned the ones who were down in that town who had been deserted. Yeah. But also in East Berlin, there was a whole, uh, well, not huge, but there was a large number of people of English speaking background. We didn't discriminate among each other so much. Some were American, some were Canadian, some were English. One very fine artist was Irish. Um, one uh, one fellow was German, but he had, as a child, as a Jewish child, he had been uh, saved by being sent to Scotland and spoke a beautiful Scot uh, dialect. And uh, these people, m- many of them, we, we occasionally met, we ran into each other, we did some things together. There were some friendships, there were also not always friendships, there were some uh, not everybody got along with everybody else, but we generally knew uh, this uh, anglophone group. As I say, uh, uh, some of them were these children who had gone to had been raised in Britain, just escaping as as children escaping Nazi Germany at the last minute. You know, there was a big big number of Jewish children who were able to escape, and uh, and then others who had been in exile and a German left leftists who had been in exile in England, the United States, Australia, who were turned and who spoke uh, also English. We were sort of a, a, an unorganized uh, group of people who met each other. For example, there was a, a famous director from London, Joan Littlewood, who had her, that Unity Theatre. And she brought it once on a, a guest visit to East Berlin and played there. And of course, everybody who knew English went to see it. And for weeks afterwards, whenever we ran into each other, we'd, uh, you'd, uh, the first question I would ask, how much did you understand? Because it was in Cockney English. So <laughs> a lot of them, I, I said I understood about 40%. My boss, John Peter, was a Londoner. He said he understood about 90%. So it varied, but we loved it. And um, uh, that 
uh, it was a, an interesting group of people that I that we uh, that spoke English and occasionally got together and did translations, etc. Right. And did you have any contact with your U.S. relatives during this period? Uh, yes, uh, f- for the first year I didn't. But then using somebody else's uh, friend's name and address, I wrote my parents so that they finally knew that I was alive and safe and uh, could correspond. And they occasionally sent gifts. I did too. Then after some years, uh, well, uh, my mother came to visit. And uh, uh, she visited me and, and met my wife and my uh older son and she came about in the course of the years about five or six times my father never came because of health he couldn't travel but my wife have a brother who also came with his family <clears throat> so that every every couple of years i did have a visit of that kind which was very very good for me and a couple of old friends too that showed up like like the one who had first warned me in high school to be a to be a leftist he also showed up and uh, and made a big hit with my my wife and my son, uh, my older son. Uh, that was always a treat for me. Right, and and with with your 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 sons, did they they uh, stayed in the the GDR? Did they? Yes, they did. They're both still in Berlin. Uh, they went to school here, like any other kids. Mm-hmm. They went to college here, also like any other kids, getting getting not only free tuition but also uh, stipends in other way, uh, what we call scholarships, which helped finance their stay there. They both finished college. One became a journalist. The other went into film making and now runs a movie theater here, a very very good one. The other is a good journalist, but. Not having such an easy time, freelance journalists have, all have a tough time in in today's Germany. Uh, I was lucky as a freelance journalist because I had a sort of a monopoly position. I was one of the very very few you could count them on one hand who had any any real knowledge about the United States. So that whenever things happened in the United States over those years, and an awful lot happened. I always had takers in the press, uh, people who I'd studied with, so I knew them all over the press from, from uh, local newspapers, radio, TV, um, magazines. I had a, a, a lot of work. I'm afraid this is no longer possible for most journalists. But I don't worry about that pers- personally because I'm a pensioner. I get a pension. Yeah. And you've got your books as well, but we'll come on to that. <laughs> Um, okay. Um, obviously, you're there at the 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 time of the um, the building of the Berlin Wall. What what was your feeling about that? Well, the first thing was, of course, you could see it coming because people were disappearing in masses. You could just see the shops were closing. You heard about assembly lines shutting down. It was obviously moving in that direction very quickly so that it was not really a surprise, except that that particular day, a Sunday, uh, my my sister-in-law came with her fiancé and we all went to the zoo so that I spent that whole day at the zoo watching animals 
and didn't know really know that what was happened until I got home in the evening. And the next morning, I got a bawling out from John Pete because he had had to put out a special number all alone without my help. And well, he was pretty angry about it, justifiably. But I hadn't really known. Uh, at the beginning, we didn't, many of us did not really appreciate what the importance in a negative sense, the importance of this war was. On the one hand, I should point out, it was a, a dreadful necessity. It was a, a, a life-saving active because it saved the GDR from going downhill to, to destruction. Uh, everything was being done to, to wreck the GDR in those days. And uh, this was really self-preservation, the war. But of course, it was very difficult and very nasty for especially Berliners who had relatives on the west side. Uh, also for the very many, many East Berliners who worked in West Berlin and took advantage of the difference in currency to make a pile of money doing it. A woman who cleaned house in West Berlin could get lower than the wages there, but by turning, by exchanging currency, she came back to East Berlin and was earning more than a top engineer. And this was one of the problems in, in Berlin. It was very, very serious and complicated situation, which was ended by the war but also meant cutting off people. And of course, for those who tried to, to go through under or over the wall, it could be fatal. But um, it didn't, of course, uh, affect me personally, except almost advantageously, because up until then, with the open border, which meant you could go back and forth with no problem between East and West Berlin, there were no, uh, you could just step across the street and you were in West Berlin. Uh, or with the subway or the underground or the elevated, it was uh, one stop away. But for me, that was a certain element of insecurity because I was always afraid of being caught as a deserter. That's why even before the wall was built, I never took one single step into West Berlin for fear of somehow being recognized or caught. And there was always a fear too of being kidnapped in East Berlin and taken to West Berlin, although I heard of a cases, a few foggy story, rumors about it. In any case, the wall meant that I was safe. So that in a way for me, it was an advantage. I might add that my passport, that my identity, uh, the one I mentioned, identity for foreigners in the GDR, permitted me to go any place I wanted in the whole world, including West Berlin, but I never used it for, for anything West in the West. I went to the Eastern countries, but never to a, Western countries because of that fear. Right. So you, you never crossed over to West Berlin whilst the wall was there or even before the wall was there? Yes, for me, it was it, uh, it uh, for everybody else. It was no, pro no uh, problem. They went back and forth all the time. I was one of the very, very uh, except for the very faithful leftists who, who avoided or, or didn't go to West Berlin. I didn't because I was really afraid to. Yeah, yeah. And life in the GDR during, because we, we talked about sort of like, you know, you, you came over there in the 50s. Um, then you were obviously working through the 60s. How did you see the the situation changing during those periods? Because I read that sort of like the the standard of living 
sort of improved to some degree, certainly through some of the early Hanukkah years. Is, is that what you saw? Yes. When I first arrived, I wasn't sure what to expect because I had read reports in the, in the media as if people were going, to, were going hungry and in rags. And that was just not true. Even in 1952, I saw nobody starving and nobody in rags. Life was relatively normal, but pretty uh, spartan. There wasn't uh, there was enough to eat in the shops, but there was not an, an awful lot to uh, to offer in 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 either textiles or in foods. There was enough. Uh, this improved very quickly in the first six months or so I was there, but then. The, uh, after the final break between East and West, you know, Stalin offered to uh, to get out of East Germany and permit a free election in all of Germany uh, with a, a new government, uh, even not a leftist, any government on, based on free elections with one condition, that it should be neutral and not military, no military, because he was afraid of that after the war. This was turned down, and so GDR established itself and started officially to build socialism. And it started, it was a very tough start, and the first months were uh, after, uh, after I arrived, end of 52, early 53, were very tough in many, many ways. And this led to this uprising in 1953 in June, June 17, 1953. There's an uprising which lasted a few days, was put down with the help of the Soviets. And after that, life improved very, very remarkably and quickly. And year for year, I, I, I should mention, for example, twice a year on May Day and on the National Fire uh, Holiday, the newspapers were full of the three or four or five pages of articles of food, clothing, and otherwise, with the prices cut again. It gradually, it worked out that the people slowly began to get um, television uh, uh, television sets and then uh, um, washing machines and fr I saw frigidaires, then washing machines and much slower than in the West, but gradually also cars, although not the kind of cars people wanted, not the fancy ones, but these little trabants, which is the kind I had, which was... Uh, um, a rather primitive little car, but it got me where I wanted to go. I had four of them. Life improved very, very much over the years, into the 70s, into the 80s. But it could never match, in terms of commodities, it could never match West Germany, which was, after all, already, very quickly, one of the richest countries in the world. It was helped in every way by this Marshall Plan whereas the GDR was disadvantaged in every way by the West, uh, in, uh, almost every way. It could just, it could manage to feed and clothe very adequately its population, but not such a fancy or not such a luxurious and not such a, uh, say, modern fad way as they were seeing in West German television every evening in their living rooms. And this was a, a a key question. They could just never catch up to that. The GDR living standards, they say, were as high as in, say, Austria or even England. 
but could never catch up with the West German or, of course, the American standard, which, as I say, they saw in American films and West German films and West German TV all the time, dangling ahead of them and making them jealous. This uh, created a big push of people who were, became uh, who were envious and jealous and sometimes uh, oppositional. Uh, which made the authorities in the GDR worried about, uh, really about a, a switchover back to, in other words, that the GDR would go down the drain as it eventually did. But they were afraid over those years, they wanted to save it. And, and the methods they used were, of course, often tough. Uh, sometimes I would say, uh, inevitably tough. But other times, uh, people with power often misuse it, as we know in every country. I was, uh, I'm, I'm of course referring to the questions involving the Stasi, the state security, mm -hmm. um, which is so much in the middle point of all reporting about the GDR. I was aware of everything of the Stasi completely. In fact, they approached me on, on several occasions, but I was able to shake off their desire to work with me when they realized that I was not the person for them to help them really. But I was less, uh, I was able to compare in the United States. I had been very much aware in the last years there of the role of the FBI, who, as I later learned, had been watching and observing me very closely. I got from the FBI, you could get information freedom of information, you can get papers about yourself. I get 1,100 pages from the FBI and similar agencies, including remarks I had made at a picnic and how much I had given in, in solidarity money to the left-wing newspapers and uh, organizations I had just gone in just to be a solidarity so that I knew that, as I say, if I wanted to put a book out about the about the secret services in in the states and in the GDR and call it Cosi Fantuti, they all do it. So that I was not quite so abhorrent. I saw the I saw the difference that the United States, which was really never threatened by enemies, it had Canada and Mexico next to it, and the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, whereas the GDR actually its its foe, its enemy was just across the street and and had officially said for years they wanted to take over the GDR. So that naturally there was a, a you could call it a, a definite paranoia, but it was a paranoia based on fact that they did want to take over. And in the long run, they did take over so that it was not a, a mistaken paranoia completely. But nevertheless, uh, as I've often said, a besieged town is really very tolerant. And uh, this was true of the GDR, which was really under siege and its entire life. And well, you, you said that you were approached by, by the Stasi. So they, they were asking you to, for you to give information on people that you knew. Was that their approach? Well, in, in one case, yes. In two cases, yes. In one case, 
when the United States in the 1970s, I think 74, opened its embassy and consulate in East Berlin after diplomatic recognition, finally in, in the mid 70s, they asked me to if I would, the, the, the embassy offered American films to the, pub, to the public on certain days, if I would go and mingle in and get to know people who went there, either Americans or Germans who went to this and tell them about it. And I told them, I said, as a deserter, I'm afraid to go that any time at all. I don't, I don't, I went there once to, to I had to register my, um, my sons and myself, but I, I don't go there. I don't, and they, they realized that I was not the person that they wanted for that or for these other duties. I, I did not reject them angrily. Of course, it wouldn't have been so clever to, but I made clear that I was not really the person who could help them. And so they left me then alone. Well, that's all we had time for, but a second episode of Victor's Story is coming soon, so stay tuned for that. There's more information, including details of Victor's new book in the show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 61. If you like what you're hearing in the podcast, you can really help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favorite podcast provider. This really helps raise the profile and helps us get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you get together and continue the Cold War conversation. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. Just go to coldwarconversations.com and click on the Join the Conversation option. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information